Your beloved pastor has the distinction of being the man who discipled me in bluebell ice cream. And my life has never been the same. It is a great blessing to be back with you. And I'm very happy that Mackie can also be with us this morning. And it's been a long time since I've seen him because it was India where I stayed in his home. I had a wonderful time with the men at our advance, as Jim likes to call it, instead of a retreat. And it was wonderful to get to know some of you and to refresh the memories. Today we're going to go over a message on an entire book of the Bible. And no, it's not going to be Obadiah, which is just one chapter. But before we launch into the deep, I want to thank the musicians for leading us in some of my favorite songs. I really love them. And the harp is so common these days in churches. It's just I've never actually seen a harp in any church before. <laughs> so it's very refreshing to hear it. It is a beautiful instrument, and it was played very lovely. Many centuries ago, a vile man roamed the planet Earth. He feared neither God nor man. He was a world-class egotist who made all of our modern politicians, Hollywood stars, and professional athletes look like men and women of phenomenal humility. This guy was incredible. He wanted to be the king. He wanted to be the ruler of the earth, basically. But, of course, he had to submit himself to the king. However, if he had ever had the chance, he would have overthrown him and wiped out his entire family. There's no question about that. Now, this man, whom I will not identify quite yet, does have other people who were like him and had exactly the same mission as him. And the one most of us remember, not personally, although there may be some individuals who might, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler wanted to wipe out all of the Jews there is a future man who's also going to want to wipe out all of the Jews, and his name is the Antichrist. We don't know his actual name, but he's called the Antichrist. Hitler was even more ambitious, however, than the star of our show this morning, because he wanted to wipe out everybody who wasn't of the Aryan race. Eastern Europeans, Russians, Indians, Hispanics, Blacks, if you were not Germanic, you were toast in his eyes. But thankfully, he was not able to succeed. Well, who is our diabolical soul that we're going to be focusing on this morning? His name is Haman. Haman is one of the most wicked men who ever lived. And we're going to see just how wicked he really was. Now the purpose, well, I'll first read our first slide. God is our friend is how I have entitled it. Our text is the book of Esther. And the theme, is there really a friend closer than a brother? Yes, 
His name is God. Now, my intent for this morning, first, I want you to learn a wee bit of history, biblical history. And so we're going to go over the entire book of Esther. We should be done about the time the Dallas Cowboys are finishing their game this afternoon. Oh, I won't take up quite that much time. A second, I want you to see how God is your friend today. How do I know he is your friend today? Because I believe the Bible. And what does the Bible say? It says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We studied Abraham, Joseph, and Moses this weekend. And one of the things I emphasize to the men is we don't compare ourselves to those men of God. They were truly extraordinary, but we can learn from them. All of us can learn from them, not just the men, but the women as well. And so it is we want to learn regarding the book of Esther today how God is still our friend. Now, there is a misconception that we have, particularly in America. We all love to do something that is so delicious. We love microwave popcorn. And it's so quick. Just a matter of minutes, and you can put melted butter on it, a little extra salt, and all that delicious manna from earth. I don't think it really came from heaven necessarily. And isn't that nasty when a pastor makes you think of food when he just is starting his sermon? But I never said I was a very nice person. But microwave popcorn brings me to this thought. Be patient with God. Be patient with others. And most importantly... Be patient with yourself because there is no such thing as microwave spirituality. You do not instantly become a spiritual giant. It just doesn't happen that way. And when you consider the life of Abraham and the life of Joseph and the life of Moses, what was one very common feature with all of them? misery. They had plenty of hardships. And as I told the men, I made a prayer once that I will never repeat again as long as I live. When I was a young idealist in Bible school, just 18 years old and wet behind the ears, come to think about it, they're still a little moist. I prayed, Lord, I would like to be patient. Please make me patient. And boy, did he answer that prayer. I never made that mistake again. You know, patience comes through affliction. Well, we're going to see a lot of affliction today in our message. I'm going to outline it just for a moment. We find marital problems in the Medo-Persian kingdom. Thankfully, in the United States kingdom, those things no longer exist but they did historically. And the problem was Queen Vashti refused to obey King Ahasuerus. Now I'm going to give a title to all of the chapters except for the last three chapters. I'm going to summarize them together. 
But chapter number one, marriage trouble in the White House. At least we can relate to the White House. King Ahasuerus was a fabulously wealthy and powerful king. His empire stretched from India all the way to Ethiopia. Do you know what that means? He ruled over a place almost as big as Texas. Probably not quite that big, but... And so chapter 1 begins with a celebration. And when King Ahasuerus threw a party, it was a big one because it was intended to last six months. Have you ever been invited to a six-month party? Well, the food was free and the drinks were on the house, so everybody's having a great time. Except there were a few dark clouds on the horizon. Something completely unexpected happened. This was unheard of. And this is what the passage says in Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Now, it says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and these are wonderful names for future children, if you want to pay attention to this, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass. I really like the last one. Seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But... Whoops. What's wrong with this thing? There it goes. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Why did she refuse to come? Now some have speculated that the king was going to ask her to do something inappropriate, something lewd. But that is really rather doubtful. I can't deny its possibility, but I don't really think that would have been the case. The scripture never tells us why she did not come. But this would cost her the throne. The king was humiliated. But this was not merely a matter of the king's pride that was at stake. Why do I say that? Well, do you think word did not get out about Queen Vashti's disobedience? Well, of course it did. Everybody in the kingdom would hear about this. Now imagine that you are a rather unscrupulous and ambitious man. There are such people in this world. I'm not sure that you are aware of that. I don't want to pick on people that have beards, but imagine these guys who had beards. They start stroking it and thinking, you know, 
if Queen Vashti got away with this, I wonder if I could defy the king and maybe even assassinate him. So this actually was, strangely as it may sound, a matter of national security. Because if the disobedience begins at the very top, it's going to definitely percolate down. And there were plenty of people who wanted to kill the king, and we're even going to read about two of those guys. So that's what happened in chapter 1. Let's look at chapter 2. King Ahasuerus finds true love. Well, actually, the truth of the matter is, I don't think he ever found true love true biblical love, but at least he would find a woman that he did supposedly love, and that would be Esther. Now, back in these days, they had things called harems, and they only selected the most beautiful women in the entire kingdom to be in the harem. Doesn't that sound just so romantic to be in the harem? It was the biggest curse a woman could ever experience. Why do I say that? I mean, her life would be provided for. She'd never have to work. That's true. But she also may never see the king. And if she ever did see the king, it would probably be once because they selected many different women and he's only going to select one queen which means those poor women were stuck for the rest of their lives in the harem and they would never get to marry and they would never get to have children of their own, no families, no husbands. So being selected was actually a great curse. Yeah, it was a great compliment because you're very beautiful, but you would be stuck there forever. So how did the king find Queen Esther? Well, just like in the fairy tale, he stood in front of the mirror and said, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And the mirror, being politically correct and sensitive, said, oh, sire, you are. <laughs> the mirror didn't want to get broken, you know. But number two is Esther. And so that's how it happened. Well, not exactly. But at least it sounds good. So let's see what did really happen in Esther chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces, and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So chapter 1 starts out with a big party. Chapter 2, we have another big party. This guy really loves his parties. But I'd like to make a few observations that are quite important to understanding the book of Esther. Observation number 1. God made sure that King Ahasuerus got... You think that's an easy name to pronounce? You say it some a few times. King Ahasuerus got more of a queen than he bargained for. Esther was quite the woman. She was not just beautiful. She was extremely intelligent and very understanding 
of the nature of men. Now, men, you have to be pretty careful. Women can be pretty sneaky at times. Don't underestimate them at all. Well, the king and Haman made the mistake of underestimating this very phenomenal woman. Observation number two, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, told Esther not to reveal her Jewish heritage. Why did he do that? We don't know. But it was probably because the Jews were continuously discriminated against. It has never been easy to be a Jew. But if I'm ever asked, why do you believe the Bible? I have a two-word answer. The Jews. And it isn't because of the Jews' faithfulness. It's because of God's faithfulness to them. And God will remain faithful to them in spite of their continuing faithlessness. And I know that this church is well-educated in prophecy. I know you study it extensively, and you will understand that. You do understand that, that God is going to continue to bless them, especially in the millennial kingdom. Observation number three, Mordecai reported on two potential assassins of the king, but was never rewarded for his action. Now, this is actually a very important passage in the book of Esther. And so we're going to read Esther chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. We can't read all of the important passages, but we'll read the ones that are most important regarding this message. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. I've always thought, you guys are doorkeepers and you think you're going to overthrow the king? How dumb can you be? So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So he had been told this was Mordecai's report. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. But nothing was done. Rather surprising. So let's go to chapter 3. The vile Haman is promoted by the king. Now, I have to tell you what happens in a Jewish audience, in a synagogue, whenever the name Haman is stated, they always use the term the vile Haman, which is used in the Bible. And when they do that, and we're not going to do that here today, much to the children's regret, but in a Jewish synagogue, whenever the name vile Haman is used, the children are allowed to stand up, stomp their feet, and hiss as loud as they can. Would you like to try it one time, kids? No? 
This is the only chance in your life you're going to get, and you're turning it down? Okay, you can turn it down. But that's what they do, and it made the story come alive for the Jewish children, and of course the adults are highly amused by the whole thing as well. But what was so special about this vile Haman? Well, we're never told. But he undoubtedly was a multi-talented individual. The king wasn't a dummy. I mean, he wouldn't promote somebody who didn't know what he was doing at all. So Haman obviously was an intelligent guy, very capable, and we know he had a monstrous ego. Nobody could doubt that. And in fact, and I mentioned this question at the conference, nobody knew the answer. There are, as far as I know, and I could be wrong on this, there are two men who... It was commanded to the common people. You have to bow down to them when they pass by. Aside from the king himself. Everybody had to bow to the king. And who were those two men? Number one, Joseph. Number two, Haman. So Haman received respect and honor that was just almost unheard of. But being the humble man that he was, it certainly didn't impact him at all. Now, there was another problem with Haman. He was fabulously wealthy. He was the Bill Gates of the day. How did he get all of his money? We don't know. There's a lot we don't know because the Bible can't give us all details. But there was a problem. There was a fly in Haman's high-priced ointment, and that fly was named Mordecai, the Jew. Mordecai would not bend his knee to Haman. Why would that be? Because a Jew does not bend his knee to a man. He bends his knee to God which is exactly our attitude, or it should be. That doesn't mean you can't give a respectful bow to somebody or something like that, but we only bend our knees to our creator. No man deserves that kind of honor, and so Mordecai wouldn't. Now, I want to use some highly technical and precise psychological jargon on you this morning. This is what was going on. This is what was happening to Haman. I've summarized it in four words. Mordecai drove Haman bananas. And Haman just could not get Mordecai out of his mind. The fact that he wouldn't bow to him just drove him crazy. And then Mordecai found out uh, pardon me, Haman found out Mordecai was a Jew. Oh, he's a Jew. Well, we're going to show Mordecai a thing or two. And so this is what the plan was. When, Morde when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. 
Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Observation number four, Haman wanted to kill every Jew within the entire kingdom. He wanted to slaughter millions of people because one guy insulted him. And you think politicians have big egos? Haman had the biggest ego that's ever been on this earth, I think, and except for one other character whose name is Lucifer, who thought he would be overthrowing God. And so it was that Haman wanted to kill all the Jews, and he was willing to pay for it, the whole thing. Man, all alive, this guy had a lot of money. So let's go to chapter 4 and see what happens next. I've entitled it, For Such a Time as This. This was the phrase that we're going to be reading short, shortly, and it's what Mordecai said to Queen Esther. But before we get into that, I want to personalize this message a little bit. For such a time as this, don't think of just Mordecai and Esther. Think of yourself. You are on earth for such a time as this. And you aren't going to live forever. Well, you will, but it'll be in heaven. You're only going to be on the earth for a short time. What are you doing with your life? How are you serving the kingdom of God? You know who can answer that question? Only you can. And God, you're the only ones who really know what you're doing. And many of you do things that nobody else does know, and that's fantastic. There are many Christians who do a tremendous amount of work and are in the background. Now, people like Jim and myself, we're up front, and so everybody sees what we do. But if we're not for people like you who are sitting in the pew most of the time, the church wouldn't function, would it? So I want to commend you and ask you to reflect upon this question. God, what do you want me to do for such a time as this? Now, as extraordinary as it may seem, Esther had no clue as to what was going on. She did not know that her people were going to be annihilated. It seems like almost everybody else did. But she apparently did not have the internet hooked up yet and did not have access to cable news. She was living in her secluded, protected, isolated quarters in the palace. She didn't even have access to the king. In fact, as the story goes on, Mordecai says, you need to approach the king. She said, I haven't been called to see him for 30 days. That's a long time without checking in on your wife to see how she's doing anyway. But that's how it was in those days. Now, Mordecai gives her this response in Esther 4, 13 and 14. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. She had sent some clothes. He had dressed in sackcloth and ashes, and she didn't know why. So 
She had sent these messengers with clothes, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther through these messengers. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai did not believe for a second that the Jews were all going to be wiped out. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai had faith that the Jews would be delivered, but he personalized it to Queen Esther, just as I'm trying to personalize it to you. I'll ask you this question. Are you effectively using the time God granted has granted you on this earth in his service? Let's look at another observation. Learn what is God's distinct purpose for you. You are on this earth for such a time as this. Well, how do you learn what is God's purpose for you? There's a very easy way to discover your spiritual gift. And I am going to tell you in two very sacred words. Do something! God will reveal to you as time goes on and as you do different things within the church and outside of the church, what you are gifted at. And generally, God has already skilled you in those areas. That's why we would consider it a spiritual gift. My spiritual gift consists of talking a long, long time. And when I was a kid, they just couldn't shut me up. They should have known what was coming down the pike. But we all have spiritual gifts. Now, some people are mechanics. Boy, if you never want your car to run again, you have me look it over. Some are carpenters. I could not make a dog house that the dog would go in. I have no skills with my hands. Even though I grew up on a farm, you would never guess it by looking at me today. Some of you ladies and men as well are fantastic cooks. You can make delicious breads and pies and you can minister to people who are needy. And yes, I am just such a needy person. In fact, I'm looking forward to the meal afterwards. And some of the cooks in Texas are among the best on planet Earth. I do really mean that. I've eaten a lot of food in Texas. It's really, really tasty. But let's get back to Haman. Chapter 5, Haman builds his own Waterloo. Now, if you're a student of history, you know what happened in Waterloo. Napoleon was finally defeated by the Germans and British forces combined. And Haman built his own method of execution, his own Waterloo, the gallows. Now, that is not an accurate, accurate picture of the gallows. His was 75 feet high. Why did he make it so high? So everybody in the city would see Mordecai hanging from it. They didn't have skyscrapers in those days. So 75 feet high would get the job done. 
When Haman would see Mordecai, the first thought in his mind is, I'm going to fix his wagon and fix it good. Now, this first banquet took place, and Haman goes home and he brags to his family that he was the only person invited to the banquet aside from the king himself. But the big crybaby thinks, you know, oops, I went too quick. I am not content until I see Mordecai dead. Now his sympathetic family lovingly and tenderly suggested that he build the 75-foot gallows. It wasn't actually his idea. It was their idea. And grinning like the baboon that he was, Haman had the gallows constructed immediately. He didn't wait around at all. The first banquet is over. They had a great time. But then it brings us to chapter 6. Insomnia serves God's purposes. Now, I don't know about you, but after I stuff myself silly, I can't stay awake. But the king had the opposite effect. He couldn't go to sleep. Do you think maybe God had something to do with that? Very possibly. In fact, because he could not sleep, he had those who record the history of the kingdom and all of his activities read the chronicles of his activities to him. Kids, I want to give you a nightmare scenario. Did you know this? That back in the Old Testament, they did not have any computer games. Life was hard in those days. That's right. And so they had to read. It's not a bad activity even today. And so as these guys are reading, and this is in the wee hours of the morning, by sheer coincidence, they read about Mordecai saving the king's unworthy hide by telling about these two potential assassins. And the king asked, well, what was done for Mordecai? The answer was disconcerting. Nothing had been done for Mordecai. Oops. That is not how kings were supposed to behave. They were supposed to be very generous when someone helped them, especially when someone saved their lives. And so the king was highly embarrassed by his oversight and was kicking himself. How could I have not done anything for Mordecai? And it wasn't just Mordecai who would notice. Everybody would have noticed because this was no secret what Mordecai had done. Well, the king knew something had to be done. And so he asked, okay, what important person is already at the palace? 
Well, it was probably around five or six in the morning, and guess who had just walked in? Haman had already been to Starbucks. He was loaded up on caffeine, and he was ready to start a day's service for the king, or probably better put, he was ready to serve himself somehow. And so there he was, walking in, not suspecting anything. And this is where the story really starts to get interesting. Let's look at Esther 6, 6 through 11. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman, with his big head, thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. You know, I can just picture the unsuspecting Haman must have had a really hard time suppressing his toothy grin and his salivating, thinking of what's going to happen to him, and his body-shaking giggles. He didn't want to make it too obvious, you know. But then the king started to smile. He thought this was a great idea. And he said this. Then, oops, then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And I know the first two words that entered into Haman's mind. The same words Orphan Annie loved to articulate. And maybe you remember, because I used him here last time I, I was here. Leaping lizards! He couldn't believe his freshly singed ears. Talk about the humiliation of humiliations. This can't be happening. He must be hallucinating. But he wasn't. The king had really said it. Haman was beside himself. He just wanted to go back home and go to bed and suck on his thumb for a while. But he wasn't able to do that. So let's look at observation number six. Haman's dilemma. God was supernaturally intervening in our story with King Ahasuerus through insomnia. Oh boy. This was no accident what was happening. This proved to be an extremely discombobulating event. I've always loved that word, discombobulating. Not very many people know what it means, but it sounds so impressive. 
Even Haman's family, after he did all of these things, even Haman's family could read the handwriting on the wall. And to make matters worse, they read it out loud to Haman and said, if you're fighting against Mordecai, you in a heap of trouble, boy. You cannot stand. Everybody, it seemed like in the kingdom, or at least in the city, knew what the wicked Haman was all about. Everybody but the pathetically slow-minded King Ahasuerus. But he was about ready to find out. Chapter 7. Haman's number is up. This is where the wicked Haman is going to get his just desserts. Now, Queen Esther had already given one banquet, and I'm sure it was a banquet to end all banquets, but she wasn't done. She invited them back for a second one. When the king asked, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom I'll give you. She said, please come back tomorrow night. Then I'll tell you what I want. And so the king agreed, and Haman, with his big head, was pretty happy about that because he was invited back again as well. Now, Queen Esther knew the weight of the king's heart was through his stomach. Ladies, times have not changed. We men may not be overly bright, but we are always hungry. Just a little hint of advice. Not that I'm trying to make any hints or anything. <laughs> Let's go to observation number seven before I really get carried away. God was supernaturally intervening for the Jews using Queen Esther. And this is where the hammer is going to fall. Because the king, after he loads himself up with the sugar-free and gluten-free food that she undoubtedly served. No, I don't think they had such things in those days. This is what she said. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Whoa, this is a bit of a revelation. Somebody's planning on killing my wife? I don't think so. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. She still, the king still doesn't know. So it continues on, and it is revealed who it is. It is Haman, is the wicked man who is going to do this. 
And the king is furious. He stomps outside. Outside, He knows he's been had. Now, in the meanwhile, something rather awkward happens. Haman, who knows he's going to be killed, is begging for his life. And he's going to beg to Queen Esther. And so I've always imagined that this is what really happened. He goes over to the couch and he trips and falls on the couch in a rather compromising position. And I've always envisioned that the angel Gabriel tripped him by sticking out his sanctified foot and giving him a little push in the back. And so the king comes in at exactly the wrong moment and he screams, Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? Well, the servants didn't need a book to be written, written about this. They immediately stuck a hood over his head. Pronouncement was death immediately. And they told the king, who apparently did not know, he didn't have the cable or the internet either. By the way, O king, Haman built a 75-foot-high gallows to hang Mordecai, the guy you just honored for saving your life. And the king's response was, hang him on it! And they hung him immediately, and they very shortly afterwards hung his ten sons. There was no passing go or collecting $200 for Haman. He was toast. End of story. No, not yet. There's still more, and you thought you were going to leave, but there's just a little bit more. The law of the Medes and Persians, they had a really goofy policy, but it could not be overturned. Be thankful that our Congress doesn't do that. We can reverse our laws. They could not. And that's why Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Remember that? The king tried to overturn the law and he couldn't. And the same situation was here. But it could be circumvented. And so what happened was the king had Mordecai and Queen Esther write a new law that basically told the entire kingdom, you touch the Jews and you're toast yourself. And so not only did a lot of Jews end up fighting, or pardon me, a lot of the people in the kingdom ended up fighting and protecting the Jews, they became Jews themselves. They found religion rather at a convenient time, I might add. But let's look at observation or chapters 8 through 10. Remember this, God's will can never be circumvented. Actually, the word I wanted was thwarted, and I forgot to change it. You can never thwart God's will, ever. God's eternal and prophetic promises toward his chosen people Israel will be fulfilled. Neither can anything stop God from fulfilling his promises to the church or to you as individuals. You can take it to the bank. Now, his will may not be performed in your time. In other words, your timing, when you want it done. But his will will always be done. I have just two more observations. Number eight, Mordecai was appointed the highest official in the land by King Ahasuerus. And uh, 
He basically, at that point, ran the government. He was, in, in essence, the prime minister. And number nine, God wants to use you just as he used Queen Esther and Mordecai so long ago. And I want you to remember this last slide because many of you doubt it. You are special in God's eyes. And God does have a purpose for you. It's your responsibility to find out what that purpose is. But don't ever let Satan tell you that you are not special. Because I know he will as soon as you walk through those doors. And he tells me the same thing. In fact, every time I preach, he tells me, you should not be preaching, you stupid hypocrite. And he's right. I don't have the real right to do it except for one thing. And this applies to you as well as it does to me. God has designated you as an ambassador for Christ. And you have become the righteousness of God through Christ. Did you hear what you are if you're in Christ? You are the righteousness of God. If that doesn't blow your minds, I don't know anything that will. Because that was the one verse in the scripture I cannot wrap my hands around. How can I be called the righteousness of God? But it's God who said it, not me. I don't feel like I'm the righteousness of God. But as believers in Christ, we have already won the victory. And I know that this church is serving God in so many ways. And I want to encourage you to continue. I would like to close in prayer for you. Thank you, Father. So much for your marvelous grace. We thank you for the story of Esther and how you intervened in such miraculous ways. And I pray that you'd help us to recognize that you want to intervene for us as well and that you want to minister through us. Thank you, Father, for the fact that this church proclaims the gospel so faithfully. They support missionaries. They're active in their community. And I just pray that you'd bless each and every one of them in a very special way. We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.